this is the conclusion for the slides on the connection between biology and behavior. Um, a key point in last week's final lecture was the importance of timing, timing of typical experience, and in unfortunate cases, timing of brain damage. The biological clock of the brain requires specific kinds of input at specific broad windows of time for the brain to develop normally and as a consequence for behavior to develop normally. If there is brain damage, the timing of that damage plays a huge role in determining the extent of recovery that's possible and how much work it will take for that recovery to take place. We study normal brain function with a variety of techniques, with new techniques coming online quite frequently. Electroencephalographic techniques, or EEG techniques, record electrical activity generated by thousands of neurons at a variety of locations in the brain. Uh, modern EEG techniques can collect activity from over 100 locations in the brain. Where these recordings are taken in sequence with or in coordination with external events, um, the presentation of a sensory stimulus, an image, a sound, we refer to these EEG recordings as event-related potentials. Uh, these are also called evoked response potentials. These are changes in electrical activity in the brain in particular locations. They may be changes that are typically increase in potential or decrease in potential. In addition to electroencephalographic recordings, there are a number of imaging techniques. The two most common are functional magnetic resonance imaging, also known as fMRI, in which a magnet produces images of cerebral blood flow in different areas of the brain, which indicates metabolic activity in those areas. Key difference for researchers between electroencephalographic recordings and images is that we can record changes in electrical activity with very fine temporal resolution. That is, we can record changes in activity that occur within a few hundred milliseconds of the presentation of a stimulus. But the spatial resolution of EEG recordings is not very fine-grained. In contrast, the spatial resolution of imaging techniques such as fMRI is much more fine-grained. I'm down to a few millimeters, but the temporal resolution is uh, much more coarse 
ingrained because these rely on changes in blood flow and changes in blood flow to brain areas occur after that area has started becoming more active. It's a particular brain area that becomes active, uses up oxygen and glucose more heavily than surrounding brain areas, and the wisdom of the body directs heavier blood flow to that area. And that takes um, much longer than the changes in electrical activity. So we have fine temporal resolution from electrical recordings from the brain. We have fine spatial resolution from images that reflect um, blood flow, uh, oxygen usage, glucose usage. Um, positron emission tomography is another imaging technique that shares the disadvantages and advantages of fMRI recording, um, but the additional disadvantage that it requires injecting radioactive material into the brain. Um, and given that there's always some risk involved in doing that, it's not used simply for research purposes. So PET recording is typically done in conjunction with medical diagnosis of neurological conditions. Um, Charles Nelson is a, a developmental psychologist who's been at University of Minnesota, who's been at Harvard, and I'm not sure where he is now, um, who has pioneered the use of um, various brain imaging techniques with children of various ages. Um, I'll show in class the videos uh, of the interview with him and of a clip from researchers at Emory who are using evoked response potentials to study brain changes that are occurring with changes in language development. Human growth patterns are um, not typical of those of other complex mammals because growth occurs over a much longer period of the lifespan, approximately 20% of our lifespan. And growth occurs unevenly, uh, very rapidly in the first two years of life and then more slowly throughout uh, toddler and early childhood and childhood years with another spurt in adolescence. In addition, growth is uneven over different parts of the body. The head grows most in prenatal development. Um, the trunk and limbs grow more in later development. Nutrition during the prenatal period and infancy uh, is really critical to normal development. Nursing is by far biologically the superior choice for infants. It gives infants the exact combination of proteins and fats that their brain needs for proper early development. In addition, the mother's milk confers um, immunity 
to infants for a number of disorders. So it's not just fat, protein, and water that a nursing infant derives from its mother. It's also antibodies, which protect against many diseases and reduce the incidence of later allergies in children. The preferences that we show for sweet foods, for fatty foods, are uh, more or less innate. Even in neonates, we can see the characteristic facial expressions for that older children and adults will demonstrate when tasting something sweet, the, the pucker when tasting something sour, and the get it out of my mouth expression when tasting something bitter. Children's relatively early experiences with food have an influence on their later relationship with food. When parents overregulate what children eat, when children eat, how much children eat, children don't develop their own capacity for regulating eating. Uh, I have vivid memories of my younger sister falling asleep at the dining room table because my mother would say, you're not leaving the table until you finish everything on your plate. And she was just as stubborn as my mother and when she had eaten what she wanted to eat she would not eat anymore and sometimes just plunked over asleep at the table and had to be carried up to bed because she wasn't going to eat anymore and my mother wouldn't let her get up. She was borderline anorexic during her teenage years and I suspect that much of that originated in those childhood struggles um, over how much she would eat. Anorexia is a very serious problem, uh, but it affects a relatively small proportion of the population. In contrast, obesity um, now affects in some parts of the country over 30 percent of the adult population and the roots of obesity are typically in childhood. Um, recent estimates are that as much as 15 percent, as many as 15 percent of children are medically obese, not just overweight but obese. Genes definitely contribute to susceptibility to excessive weight gain, but the availability of food, the fact that the cheapest food is um, high carb, high salt, high fat, um, has led to an epidemic of obesity. Another problem related to nutrition that characterizes uh, some infants is failure to thrive. In failure to thrive, infants who have access to an adequate supply of food become malnourished because they don't eat and they fail to grow at a normal rate. Failure to thrive was initially thought to be primarily a of psychogenic 
origin. That is, that the mother-child attachment was seriously disturbed and that was leading to the infant's failure to receive adequate nutrition. The mother was inattentive to the infant's signals. The infant wasn't responsive to the mother's attempt to feed. Um, it's now recognized that while disordered maternal infant interactions contribute to some cases of failure to thrive, that there are organic causes in most cases where failure to thrive occurs before six months it's uh, more likely to result in serious developmental delay um, typical therapy includes um, what's known as feeding therapy for the infant the child that's done in conjunction with the mother um, both to improve um, swallowing muscle tone the child's response to oral stimulation uh, and the interaction between mother and child. Worldwide, infant malnutrition is a critical problem. Um, it occurs in multiple varieties. Two of the most serious are known as marasmus and quashicor. Marasmus involves ingestion of too few calories. The balance of nutrients is adequate, but children fail to grow at a normal rate. In Quashricor, infants receive perhaps adequate calories in the form of carbohydrates, um, though typically not, but a vastly deficient um, amount of protein in their diet. The result of malnutrition is the children have less energy, they're less responsive to their caretakers, they're less responsive to their environments, so they're both direct and indirect impacts on all aspects of development. If nutritional deprivation coincides with sensitive periods for brain development, the developmental losses may be severe and quite permanent. So normal brain development depends on having a normal environment in which children receive affectionate, responsive care, in which children receive linguistic input, a variety of forms of stimulation for their sensory and perceptual systems, the opportunity to reach for and manipulate objects, the opportunity for moving around in their environment, and adequate nutrition. Myelination of neurons, synaptogenesis, and synaptic pruning are the biological mechanisms of experience and environment expectant and dependent development. So children have to have appropriate experience during sensitive periods, adequate nutrition, or normal development is seriously and tragically permanently impaired.